Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One, and welcome back to a special mailbag episode of the Box and One podcast. It's episode 17 for us, and we do apologize for a bit of a delay between episodes 16 and 17. Our intention here was to record a, a mailbag podcast sometime around five or six days ago from when you're probably seeing this first be published. And the trade deadline started to hit a little bit early with the Karis LeVert trade. We saw a changing landscape, and a lot of the questions that we had accumulated were split into two parts. One was about the draft class of guys in 2022 looking forward. The other were some of those rookies in 2020 or 2021 who are just getting their feet wet in the NBA. We had a lot of questions about those guys. I wanted to make sure that we had a complete picture of the landscape moving forward before we really dove into trying to figure out what the pathway looks like for some of those guys to keep getting NBA minutes. And a huge part of that was seeing what dominoes were to fall at the NBA trade deadline. We could have split this into two parts. Yes, we could have done a part A on 2022 class and a part B following up on some of those other players in the NBA. And one of the reasons we, we really decided and ultimately couldn't take that avenue was because I'm still coaching in season right now. Uh, we've got at least another week and a half left of our basketball season here at the school that I'm coaching at. It's been a lot of teaching. It's been a lot of growth involved and mince, mincing no words about it. My top priority is in helping our basketball team win games. So when we get into our season, we're playing three games a week, trying to make up those that were postponed earlier due to COVID. It's, uh, it, it becomes a little bit more challenging to try to squeeze in there an hour, an hour and a half long mailbag episode. So instead of breaking it into two parts, we're giving you the full thing right now with a ton of different questions. And we know that that's why you're here, right? You're here to see if some of your questions got answered and just talk basketball. So the focus of our mailbag, the 2020, 2021, and 2022 NBA draft classes. Let's dive right into the questions. First, coming from Rich Berta at Rich Berta on Twitter. Are scouts being stubborn on ranking Chet Holmgren so high? From a stats or physical perspective, I'm not seeing how this guy will be an all-star. He's got a frail frame, needs to put on 30 pounds or so, a low steal rate, not the best switchability, shooting concerns, et cetera. This question came about nine days ago. And since then, Chet Holmgren has gone off. He had what I would call the best prospect performance of the year, which came against BYU, where he had 20 points, 17 rebounds, six assists, five blocks in only about 25, 26 minutes. Dominant, absolutely dominant. So Rich, are scouts being stubborn on Chet? Definitely not. He has played incredibly, incredibly well. He is, he's such a unique talent, right? I still have him as a top three guy. I think he's a lock to stay in the top three in this year's draft class. Better yet, I think he's really making a strong, serious push for number one. He has elite feel defensively. Some of the competitiveness that he has and how hard he, he really plays outweighs a few of those physical concerns that you might have about getting pushed around, being less than 200 pounds as a seven-footer. The low steal rate that you mentioned doesn't bother me when his block rate is above 12% and he's averaging over you know, 10 rebounds a game in, in WCC play. Because he's able to impact in some of those strong ways defensively, I don't worry too much about a low steal rate. He shoots free throws well. He gets there a decent amount. Um, you know, for me, the, the functionality and the concerns really have always come off the bounce. But he's shooting a better percentage from three than Jabari Smith at Auburn, the guy who everybody's looking at as this elite shooting prospect. And Smith has those self-creation, one-dribble pull-up areas that Holmgren doesn't quite have right now. But if you look at how Chet plays in the open floor, the transition from one end to the other, the pull-up threes and transition that he's able to hit. The shooting ability is very, very real for him. So I don't necessarily understand where the skepticism comes from on the, the shooting concerns, other than knowing that he's not going to be an elite creator for himself in the half court. But he's got great touch. And, and, and touch is more than just hitting threes, right? Touch is... Can you quickly catch and finish from six to eight feet with a little bit of a, a mid-range or a floater? 
if you're driving to the basket and you can't quite get to a, a clean layup off the glass, do you have the ability to adjust with one bounce remaining or, or one step remaining and get yourself in a position to succeed? I think Chet has unbelievable touch in those ways. And he's one of the better finishers with his non-dominant hand, with his left hand, in a way that gives me a lot of, of optimism about his finishing ability. I will add one bit of context or caveat here. I think Holmgren needs the, the right system, the right coaching to bring out his unorthodox game. And what we're seeing from Evan Mobley in Cleveland is probably the biggest example of how much that matters. Surrounding him with a guy like Jarrett Allen, somebody else who allows him not to be picked on as, as a five immediately in his career because he isn't physically ready for that type of, of banging in the low post on a, on a nightly basis. He plays with a great point guard in, in Darius Garland, who's fantastic at hitting the roll man, manipulates guys in the pick and roll, and because he's a good pull-up shooter, forces two defenders out to him. So now Mobley is making great plays on the short roll and has a little bit more of an opportunity to attack the basket. I think Chet probably needs some of those same you know, surrounding factors. And to me, the best place to put him would be Oklahoma City with Josh Giddy, an unbelievable passer, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, a ready-made, long, functional defender who can get to the lane really whenever he wants on offense. Those are, are the right backcourt pairings for somebody like Chet to really pop. And because Oklahoma City doesn't have an established frontcourt star to already pair with him, I think that allows the Thunder and Sam Presti to really remake their, their frontcourt roster around the unique needs of a guy like Holmgren. So the context is going to be important for where he ends up as to whether he shows as well as the guys like Jabari Smith or Paolo Mancara. But no doubt in my mind, he remains a top three guy, and I'm getting very, very close to putting him number one overall on our 2022 big board. Next question comes from Nate Babcock NBA Draft, at Coach Nate B Draft. Really good guy on Twitter. Really appreciate all the interactions that we have. And, and he and I had this as an exchange back and forth in a Twitter DM, not necessarily a question or a reply that he left, but it sparked a lot of really insightful conversation on roster building, approaching the draft, and, and really what do you value when you have a lottery pick? So uh, Coach Nate's question was, how valuable do you think guards who aren't really plus defenders and who need to have the ball in their hands a lot are? Uh, this long conversation probably went on for about 30 minutes between the two of us, and, and I think his points were really centered around Jaden Hardy. Right. What we were talking about are guys who are volume scorers, who aren't necessarily efficient, aren't great athletes. So they don't project as somebody who can turn into a major time plus defender and might look a little uninspired on that end. His thought process here was uh, probably not that he's, he's too high on a guy like Hardy. He doesn't like guys who force, who uh, the way he looks at the NBA landscape are that there aren't too many winning teams and seem to have players who are these low feel primary scorers. And, and right now it seems that Hardy might be falling into that category in the eyes of many. My point was a little bit different. Many guys who turn into great top options in the NBA had some shot quality or shot selection concerns when they were coming into the league. You know, Carmelo Anthony probably deserved that mantle and had to follow him throughout much of his career. But Jason Tatum and Anthony Edwards were guys who continually were talked about pre-draft as not having great feel. And they get to the NBA, and they have solid passing ability, but as they continue to improve, they start to make better decisions. They figure it out to a point where, you know, because they have such a deep bag of offensive tricks and upside, I, I think that they are going to command so much attention from NBA-level defenses that the passes become clearer. This whole philosophy of where to draft guys, right? It, I don't get driven crazy by guys who take a lot of shots offensively who are major, major offensive talents pre-draft, right? Anthony Edwards was number one on our board. Jason Tatum, I believe, was either two or three uh, back in 2017. So seeing a, a guy who has this level of offensive talent can create their own shot. To me, that's what I look for more than the high field, the guys who are 
showing great levels of balance between when they shoot and when they create. Not necessarily saying it's easy to teach feel, but it's much harder to find somebody who's really good as a scoring option. Now, I want to be very clear. There's a, a major difference between Jaden Hardy and Tatum and Edwards. Those comps tend to fall apart because Hardy is not an elite athlete and he doesn't have the physical tools to be a great defender, whereas Tatum and Edwards had both coming into the league despite not necessarily playing to that potential when Tatum was at Duke or Edwards was at Georgia. Because of that, yeah, we don't have Hardy as a top three guy in this draft, and we're not necessarily advocating for him to be in the mix with Jabari Smith, Paolo Bencaro, Chet Holmgren in that tier of top three guys, whereas the Tatums and the Edwards of the world were clearly some of the top guys in their draft classes. That said, I think the perception that this is a weaker draft class, or at least that there aren't a ton of top tier alpha talents available, even outside of the top three or four, I still think Hardy is the right type of player to take a swing on in the five to nine range. And here's why. The, the hardest thing to find is a generational scorer for a franchise. Every champion seems to need one, unless you're the 2004 Detroit Pistons. It's just so hard to find. And if you're a team right now, like the Pacers, the Spurs a little bit, the Sacramento Kings, like these are the guys I'd feel comfortable swinging on if you don't end up in the top five pick. You know, the high IQ, the, the filler pieces, the really good second or third options might be around there. And, and yes, there's risk associated with drafting a guy like Hardy who's been inefficient and isn't an elite athlete and, and might have some concerns with, with playmaking for others. But it's the timing and the process behind the why of the draft pick that seems to make this, this the right time to pull the trigger on that, especially in a draft class like this. I like Hardy a lot. I'm not shying away from that. At the beginning of the year, he came in as the number one overall prospect, and I sincerely hope that this doesn't come off on me just trying to cling on to the, the prospect that I thought would be there when the evidence in front of us might indicate that he's not. But I think Hardy's gotten a lot better throughout the year. He's improved in terms of his comfort, pace, and, and ability out of the pick and roll. And, and quite frankly, for a lot of these teams that are in that five to nine range, I don't see the value in taking another above average role player, projects as somebody who might be a third or a fourth starter down the line, when at worst, you can probably get 15 to 18 points a game off the bench out of Hardy if he doesn't turn into that number one overall scoring option and alpha for your team. So it's, it's a difference of philosophy in a lot of those ways. It's why Hardy remains number five on our board right now. Believe me, we've debated tinkering him down a little bit lower, but I think in that five to nine range, the philosophy of why is, is something that's really important for, for why Hardy remains in the mix for us. All right, Snort Me Gently, what a name, uh, asked on Twitter. I hear in various circles that all of guards, wings, and, bing, and bigs take the longest to develop, which obviously can't be true. Which position group do you think actually takes the longest to come into form? And is guard, wing, or big the wrong way to think about it? Should we be more focused on skills? I thought, despite the really strange Twitter name, this was a fantastic question. So I'll explain how I tend to go about things. I tend to think that the bigs take the longest to develop in the NBA because anchoring a defense is, is like being a quarterback on, on one end of the floor. Uh, point guards offensively are seen as the quarterback a lot of times, but being a point guard isn't really a thing anymore. You know, how many primary creators or primary options for teams are not the smallest guy on the floor who dribbles it up and initiates offense? Probably closer to half of the league right now. So quarterbacking an offense is more about your offensive skill. Plus, you get really, really relevant reps through that in AAU. A lot of times in high school when you're the best player on your team and in college. So the transition offensively isn't quite as large defensively what we ask bigs to do when they can't just stand there and you know swat shots away because they're the biggest guy on the floor it, it's quite the challenge in the learning curve i think it took deandre ayton two two and a half years to become a really high level defensive big man and he got there 
You know, it took Rudy Gobert a couple of years before he really found his way onto the floor consistently for the Utah Jazz. Even the elite of the elite still take a lot of time to develop. I mean, there were points in time when I didn't think Joel Embiid was going to be a great defensive center. So there are just very few guys who can come in and do it right away. But the second part of Snort Me Gently's question was a, a really, really strong one, trying to shift and think about how much longer it takes some guys to earn minutes on the floor, more based on their skills than on their possession. I, I think that that's probably the right way to look at it. You know, those who are athletic and really solid on defense have a good understanding of positioning or might be a step or two ahead of a lot of their contemporaries. They can probably play right away as, as well as those who can, can just knock down shots off ball. Those are the types of skills that to me translate to early career impact three and D wings who played that role in college and you can plug in right away guys who understand help defensive rotations and have natural feel on that end of the floor. Beyond that, I think maybe individual context is just the best way to look at it, right? So Jalen Suggs, for example, we have not soured on him in the slightest bit because we understand he probably needs more spread pick and roll reps, something he did not get a lot of last year at Gonzaga. So it's a lot of times if you're looking at the skills and how they develop, it's not necessarily an absence of one, but an absence of practicing it in an NBA translatable way before you get to the pros. Again, fantastic question right there. Uh, thought it was it was really relevant to talk about, but if I have to pick one position group that takes a little bit longer to develop than others, I'm, I'm going with big men. SF Scouting at SF Training for Got to give SF Scouting a huge shout out. One of our, our most devoted Twitter followers, you guys are, are fantastic at pumping out, retweeting, liking a lot of our stuff out there. We see it, we notice it. We are really, really appreciative. Thank you for doing so. And thank you for the question here today. SF Scouting wants to know, are you concerned by AJ Griffin's lateral quickness, lack of athleticism, especially guarding the basketball? I'm not one for sugarcoating things. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned. I'm concerned a lot by his athletic profile. He looks so strong and chiseled for one of the youngest guys in this draft class. It's pretty impressive. But there are real concerns to how he moves and kind of the functionality. I know that's a big buzzword on a lot of our NBA Twitter draft bingo uh, terminology right now. But functionality is a, is a big deal to me. Offensively, he doesn't elevate on his jumper. It's a set shot, which is okay when you're 6'5 and you have decent length, but he has such a wide base on it that he almost shrinks himself a half of an inch. Wide bases or narrow bases with your footwork on a jump shot have always bothered me because when you're a really, really good shooter and the shot goes in, a lot of times you tend to say, don't mess with the mechanics, right? If Griffin ends up being a projectably strong shooter, he's probably going to get chased off the line a little bit more. And when you have a narrow base with your feet or a really wide one, attacking closeouts that are overzealous that run you off the line is a little bit harder to do because it takes you longer to generate momentum and speed going towards the basket. You're not naturally in that, that athletic stance that you have where your feet are about shoulder width apart. So the wide base jumper, the set shot and the lack of elevation does worry me just a little bit, but athletically there's just something weird going on with him because he doesn't play as athletic as he should be. I mean, we've seen some, some dunks, we've seen some really high flying ability that he has, and he uses it so rarely on the basketball court. He's really strong when he's able to get somebody on his left shoulder and just barrel and bully through them. But I don't necessarily see the, the nimbleness in tight spaces. I don't see the ability to, to maneuver around long-armed defenders where right now he's relying on that left shoulder to just lower into somebody's chest and allow him to get into the lane. So I certainly have concerns with Griffin. I think that in this draft class with his natural feel for scoring and how hot he can get from the floor, he's probably still a lottery pick, but we're, we're skeptical in a lot of ways. Uh, he's played better. We've got to dive into the tape a little bit further because in the, the busyness of the season, we don't have the ability to watch every single Duke game. But yes, defensively, we have our concerns about Griffin. 
but it's not just on that end. Cal Frank on Twitter asked about Josh Primo. I think uh, Cal Frank always asking about the Spurs on our channel, but wanted to know our thoughts on Josh Primo thus far. And, and this is where getting through the trade deadline was really important for us, trying to see if the San Antonio Spurs made a commitment to clearing some room in the backcourt to let him get reps. Because right now, the Spurs backcourt has been crowded throughout the entire season. DeJounte Murray is an all-star. Devin Vassell is one of our favorite younger players, somebody who was, I believe, top three or top four on our 2020 board. We love Devin Vassell. And he's played very well and gotten better off the bounce. He's better at attacking the basket, making some athletic gains. Vassell looks great. You have a bunch of other guards that were on the roster there, and they started to clear the way by getting rid of the Bryn Forbes of the world. They made that trade to get rid of Derek White to Boston, which was a fantastic trade for both sides, if you ask me. But it shows faith in the development of Josh Primo. And when you take somebody 13th overall, you're obviously going to try to, to do everything you can to put him in positions to succeed. But this is an accelerated timeline as far as I'm concerned for how they did that by getting rid of White now, cashing out, and not necessarily bringing back a guard that can play any type of minutes right away. So I would expect to see Primo log somewhere between 15 to 20 minutes a game for the rest of the season. I've only seen limited samples mostly in the G League because there's only so much I get to watch this time of year. I've thought he's shot the ball really, really well. And he's adding functional craft in the pick and roll, more so as a scorer than a, as a facilitator. His score first instincts are, are really clear to me right now. Whether that's just what he wants to do in the G League or if that's the type of player that he is and is going to be long term, I really get it. When the Spurs drafted him in the lottery, a, a huge reason I was okay with that pick was because I thought he flashed enough individual creation upside at Alabama to really intrigue me. It wasn't over high volume because he shared the backcourt with Javon Quinterly, but what he was able to do with the ball in his hands was very impressive. I think the Spurs are doing the right thing in easing the burden onto him very gently. Getting a lot of those G League reps is very important for a guy like him to run the show so that in a year or two when he gets to the NBA, he has comfort already doing that. You know, I think with Primo, and I've learned this from listening to Matt Penny all the time, shout out Penny, as Sam Vecini would say, uh, talking about pre-drafts and, and Primo was his guy and thinking about where would he go in a draft class this year. I think Primo is a clear top seven guy. Had he gone back to Alabama, produced at a little bit higher volume as a sophomore, like he probably is a top seven guy, which in retrospect makes this pick a really strong one from San Antonio. So my thoughts on Josh Primo are overwhelmingly positive, like what we've seen, want to see much more defensively, want to see more as a facilitator, but he's a super, super young guy, still a little bit of a ball of clay. The scoring instincts are very encouraging. So good job by the Spurs clearing the deck for him to make sure that he gets a little bit more of a run with the big organization. Sarasta at C Sarasta on Twitter. Frequent question asker here for the Boxing One podcast. Do you think that if Kyra Lewis Jr. played for a different team, he'd be further along? It's a tough question to answer simply because of the injuries for him. I think timing-wise, it's been, it's been tough to know exactly where his long-term trajectory is going to be. Lewis had a lot to learn about half-court play in the NBA. He was much more up-tempo when he was at Alabama, and it seems like this is our Nate Oates Crimson Tide point guard segment here. But, uh, but, but Lewis had a, a little bit steeper of a learning curve. He was young for his draft class, even though he was a sophomore. He was likely to be a developmental project because of the half-court stuff and all the up-tempo systems that he played in, in Alabama. I still think he's okay. He's going to be fine. But missing year two is, to me, a really, really tough one because that's when you start to get your legs underneath you. New Orleans, I don't know if a change of scenery or a different place would be better or that we'd see him be further along. But there's just so many moving parts in New Orleans right now, it's, it's hard to project. They feel urgency to win as opposed to develop, which is why they made some of the, the trades that they made at the trade deadline. And quite frankly, we wanted to withhold from answering this question on Kyra until we saw how the trade deadline went down. Um, 
Zion hasn't played, right? And when your best player isn't in the lineup and you're still trying to win games because you feel urgency to keep him bought in long-term, playing heavy minutes to a guy like Kyra becomes a lot harder to do. So I'm trying to keep the glass half full and look a little bit more at the circumstances surrounding things to not get off the Kyra Lewis bandwagon. We thought he was going to be a top five potential player in the 2020 draft class. Was a big fan of his game, his speed, his shooting ability, and initially liked the fit next to Zion. But health is going to be a huge thing. So this is one of those incomplete grades that you get at the uh, at the end of a marking period because there's just not enough work turned in to really know how he stands. Another friend of the Box and One podcast here, Maxwell Bomback had a really strong question here. Uh, I feel like a lot of evaluators are very open about their bigger misses, but we rarely talk about our smaller ones. Who is a mid-tier role player type of prospect that you missed on who changed your process or mindset as a scout? And what lessons did you learn or take away? I love this question because yes, it's easy for me to sit here and say, man, did I miss on guys like LaMelo Ball having him in the, the teens or Mo Bamba, number one overall over guys like Luca and Trey in 2018. Those are going to haunt me forever. And I spend a lot of time going back and thinking about watching tape and trying to reformat why some of that may or may not have, have worked out for the better. You know, I feel fairly comfortable with a lot of the processes that I've, I've went through uh, over the last few years. The one class that is going to bother me for a while is that 2020 class. I definitely overthought it tinkered with the board way, way, way too much because that was the year the draft took place in November and we had an extra five months to, you know, move things around and overanalyze. Uh, I missed on a few guys at the top, right? I did not have LaMelo or Halliburton in my top 10. I had Bain as a second round pick when it seems like he was a trendy guy from a lot of independent evaluators like myself to see as a, a lottery type of talent. I was too high on quite a few guys too. You know, we mentioned Kyra a little bit earlier. I think I was way too high on Tyrell Terry and Theo Maladon. And I was certainly too high on Killian Hayes, which I'm not the only one who, who went through that process. But 2020 is going to be one of those years where I look back and I say, it just, it didn't really jive for me. The way things played out uh, weren't great. But the biggest role player that I missed on, and probably the one lesson that has stuck with me the most from that draft class is Jaden McDaniels out of Washington. You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about two different developmental factors. One is guys who play in a two, three zone in college that I've in the past tended to not necessarily write them off, but hold against them the learning curve that they might have to come in and be a strong defender in the NBA. Syracuse and Jim Beheim. Mike Hopkins at Washington, they have this strategy of really recruiting and playing two or three strong, long forward wing types who might not have a ton of perimeter skill offensively, but because they're long, they're rebound and they can cover ground are the ideal fits in, in their defensive system. I think those guys are, at least in the past, had been really, really difficult evaluations defensively because they're required to guard some of the best players one-on-one -on -one in man-to-man -man situations. And their rotations are really key to the basket and in the half court. McDaniels I definitely held that against him a little bit when I, I probably shouldn't have. The, the other part of this is I thought that a lack of skill at the four in today's modern NBA would really, really haunt him. He had some terrible turnover rates I thought he only had one or two go-to moves from what we were able to see from the film. And I had him 52nd on my overall board, just another one of those athletes that I didn't want to fall into the trap of seeing the upside around. I've learned to be better as a result. Learn to be more imaginative with guys who come out of zone situations, more imaginative with guys who are just long and athletic in a lot of really good ways and, and see the value in athleticism as defense especially at the three or four positions. So, um, you know, if they can do enough offensively to, to warrant those minutes, I think, I think those guys become passable in the NBA. And McDaniels has definitely proved me wrong in that regard. 
So it's, it's more so about forcing myself to, to look deeper into those positions moving forward. A great question by Max. Uh, shout out, Max. Does a lot of great work on his own, but uh, a really intriguing question that got me thinking a little bit more about just how hard 2020 as a draft class really is, has been for me. Um, you know, 21 and 18 were much better. 19 had its hits and its misses, but 20 was, was really, really tough. We're on a roll right now with friends of the podcast. Steph No, former podcast guest. Congratulations to him getting to work for Sporting News. Uh, unbelievable guy. He puts out a great series of, of hidden gem breakdowns every Tuesday. Definitely check those out. Steph is one of the best out there and, and really glad to see him thriving uh, as the calendar turns to 2022. Steph wanted to know, how would you rank this current crop of rookies as compared to previous years? Seems like this one might be the best in recent memory behind only the 2018 class with guys like Luca, Trey, Shea, Aiden, et cetera. It's a, those two are neck and neck. Uh, I think this class is actually better than the 2018 class. 2018 had the, the brighter stars at the top who shined right away, right? Luca and Trey came in and were offensive cogs from day one. Shea Gilgis-Alexander got there. By the end of year two, DeAndre Ayton turning into an NBA Finals stalwart by the end of years three. Uh, the, the depth outside the top 10 in this 2021 class is really what makes it special for me. It's not just those top tier guys that are all performing really well, right? If you look at the top eight of this year's draft, Cade Cunningham, Jalen Green, Jalen Suggs, Scotty Barnes, Evan Mobley, that was a huge top five. Giddy at six, Kaminga at seven, Wagner at eight. All eight of those guys have lived up to or exceeded expectations with perhaps the, the caveat of Jalen Green struggling a little bit in Houston. But it's way too early to bail on somebody with his athletic and scoring talents. He's able to piece it together. Those eight guys are maybe a half step behind where the 2018 top of the class really was in terms of instant impact offensively, but all of them are really, really good are going to be building blocks for their franchise moving forward. And it's the depth of this 21 class that, that has me very excited. You know, other guys who are coming in and making instant impacts as rookies are showing major flashes. I look at Moses Moody and what he's doing in, in the G league right now. And I'm, I'm blown away. Uh, I've, I haven't seen, that type of scoring ability. I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be possible from a guy like him, at least this early in his career, but he's putting up 30 point games in the G league, you know, Zaire Williams at Stanford. I thought, uh, I thought he was a, a top 10 worthy prospect that might've been debatable at the time for many, but I didn't expect him to be getting quality minutes for the Memphis Grizzlies, a, a playoff team this early in his career. You know, he's, he's played in 37 games and, and he's been decently efficient. Uh, he's got to, got to shoot the ball better from three, but he's been decently efficient. You know, we talked about Josh Primo also making a lot of those earlier gains in the G League where he looks pretty solid. Chris Duarte is averaging 14 a game for the Pacers and starting for them. You know, guys like Alper and Shengun, I, I thought I thought he was a top 10 guy, and he ends up going 16th overall. He's been very, very fun to watch and creative. Other guys like Trey Mann in Oklahoma City getting some decent playing time. Quentin Grimes for the Knicks doing a lot of good things. Cam Thomas, we thought he was a lottery talent. He went 27th. He's averaged over 20 a game over the last few weeks. He's scoring the basketball really, really well as the Nets have, have started to lose games. Second round picks and guys like Herbert Jones and Jeremiah Robinson Earl, Io Dusunmu. It's the depth of this 21 class that makes me really, really excited and thinks that they're going to be winding up at a tier above even 2018. I said it at the time. I'm going to say it again. From draft night onward, I had a feeling that this was going to be the best draft class we've had since 2003, the LeBron Wade Mello draft class. Kai Kai, we have our first YouTube question coming from Kai Kai. Where do or would you have Shaden Sharp ranked in this class? Now, obviously, Sharp has been at Kentucky, been practicing at Kentucky. There was a lot of back and forth on the internet about whether he would come in and play. John Calipari came out last week and said very definitively, no, we're not going to play sharp this year. 
He's here to develop. We've had this conversation with his parents. We're not going to place him in an unfortunate position. Where would I have him? Simply right now, I haven't watched enough tape, um, at least recently. I've obviously seen him play through the AAU circuit and, and know a lot of what he does, but I haven't watched enough full games to really give clarity on that. I think he's probably a top six or seven talent. He's probably right in that range with a guy like Johnny Davis or Ty Ty Washington for where he might go in this draft class. But I don't feel fully ready to commit to that yet just because I haven't seen enough. Now, there's a separate question that comes with Sharp. Does he look at the current draft landscape in 2022 and know the hype that he has coming out of high school? and say the best path for me to get a really high number on the draft board is to not play at Kentucky and then declare and go into this 2022 class. Be the man of mystery who hasn't played where people go off of my workouts, go off of my high school tape, and just believe and buy into me physically because my upside is probably greater still than most of the other guys they may get in the five through eight range. It's, it's going to be curious to, to watch. Uh, I don't know how he's going to weigh in on that, how the different factors around him are, are going to weigh in on that, but it would be really interesting to see him declare for the 2022 draft and end up getting, getting drafted in the top eight despite not playing a game the entire season. I think he's the one guy who might look at this landscape, the lack of talent that has risen up to lottery level consistently and say, this is my best path forward especially when 2023 already has some big names at the top with guys like Victor Wembenyama and Scoot Henderson. So something to watch. Not sure what we would advise, but uh, certainly been a, a unique circumstance for Sharp getting to Kentucky and wondering how long he stays there. NBA draft thoughts at thoughts underscore draft. Asked a good question about one of our favorite sleeper guys, Jordan Hall from St. Joe's. What's your take on Jordan Hall's defense? Seems like a pretty big swing skill for him. Uh, yeah, it's it's a huge swing skill. You know, he's a, a six foot six, six foot seven point guard. Season passes over the top of defenses, has made huge strides as a pull up shooter and somebody who can play off ball from deep. Those have me very confident that he can be a first round pick and is is going to be right on the borderline of being a first round talent. I'm not sure where we fall on what the best position is for him to guard defensively. Some part of me feels like he almost has to be a three or a four because he lacks great lateral quickness. He plays a little bit more upright and stiff, but offensively his skill does excuse me, does follow that a little bit more of a guard. I'm curious to see if he goes to the combine and plays and what type of player and position that he guards out there when he's on the floor against other great athletes and scouts are paying attention to how he guards in space right now in the a 10, which is a, a really underrated conference in terms of pro level talent and the quality of play. Uh, I, I think that because St. Joe's caters everything around him, they're finding ways to, um, to mask him a little bit. And Billy Lang head coach there who used to be an assistant for the, the 76ers is, is doing a fantastic job of maximizing the group around him. I do worry about the lateral quickness, how he defends in space. I don't know how switchable he is. I don't know if he's best as a three, as a two. You know, I think the NBA is shifting to a place where you've got to be able to guard ones and twos, or you've got to be able to guard threes and fours. That just being a two and three defender might not be enough because those position lines between one and two and between three and four have gotten a little bit blurred. So. Uh, something to watch, something that I think is a, an accurate question to be asking right now, but workouts and combine if he plays, postseason play, and, and watching him against other top guards is going to become very important for Hall. Russell asked the question, what's your assessment of David, David Roddy? Do you think his game will translate to the NBA? Uh, I have often lamented comparing players to other guys who have come through the draft process before. I think it sets up false ceilings and expectations. I'm going to break my own rule here. I see a lot of Anthony Lamb, the guard out of Vermont, 
in David Roddy. Strong bodied, maybe a little bit undersized for a forward, but really good feel, really a do-it-all type of player who just dominates at those mid-major levels. I like Roddy's strength. I like the ISO scoring. His footwork is incredibly strong, great finisher, and has knocked down shots this year. I want to see him work on guarding athleticism or quickness in space. I have him right now as a little bit more of that G League stud type of guy, not necessarily knowing where he finds a natural fit on an NBA floor, but because he's talented, he's strong, and he has a natural scoring feel, I think he's going to be pretty good in the G League and, and flirting with NBA call-ups for at least a couple of years. William Ash Redford at Avery H. Pierce on Twitter asks, who's a good prospect that you think is in a bad situation and will thrive in the NBA? There are, there are quite a few guys in this draft class that I'll, I'll point out as being, um, being the right guy for this. So first and foremost is Patrick Baldwin Jr. He has disappointed this year in a lot of ways, but it's hard for me to know what to pin on him and what to pin on the situation because Milwaukee has some of the worst guard play in college basketball. It, he's trying to do way too much off the bounce. He doesn't get clean enough catch and shoot looks because they are incredible threats to attack the defense and they turn it over way too much. So uh, Baldwin strikes me as one of those guys who his game is very translatable to the NBA. If he can be a guy who spots up in the corner and surrounds a great guard, but he just doesn't have that right now. Um, Jalen Duran and, and even Josh Minot a little bit at Memphis. You know, that's that's been a disappointing team this year because of all the talent that they have, the lack of a a leader at the point guard position or somebody who can create easy dunks for Duran out of the pick and roll or who knows how to get Minot easy looks offensively. It, it's limiting both in a lot of different ways. I'm not overwhelmingly high on Duran. I still don't think of him as a top 10 prospect but it's easy for me to understand why I would want to take the gamble on him in that late lottery range, knowing that a huge reason he hasn't been as impactful offensively this year is because he doesn't have someone to gift wrap him easy shots at the basket out of the pick and roll, or even off of dump downs. I'm going to throw one, one other name out there for Mr. Redford, who asked this, uh, this, this question, Matthew Meyer. At Baylor, I think his offense doesn't get enough love for how simple and translatable it is to the NBA. A good shooter, a strong passer, somebody who knows how to attack closeouts the right way and can finish around the basket. I, I think there's so many guards that Baylor has played through last year and even this year with guys like uh, LJ Cryer knocking down a ton of shots. Meyer tends to blend into the background a little bit more. Defensively, all of the attention at Baylor goes to guys like Jeremy Sohan and, and Kendall Brown. And deservedly so. Those two are lottery-level athletes and talents who are incredibly disruptive. But Meyer is a good defender in his own right. Just a very sturdy player who doesn't get a ton of reps and blends into the background a lot more on a team that has continued to compete for national championships and be at the top of college basketball and have some really high-caliber prospects around him. I think that Meyer's game is one that's going to translate really well to the NBA. He's one guy that every time we go through re-ranking our systems and, and making sure our big board lines up, I make it a point to know that he's got to stay in that 25 to 35 range. That's just where I think he is as a, a do-it-all really solid player. couple more questions here. Anthony Morris, who's your diamond in the rough in this draft? The guy who's projected around 32, but – that I just have a feeling is going to be a borderline all-star. Um, you know, it's a, it's a trap question because I think if I thought he was going to be an all-star, I wouldn't have him 32nd. I'm not shy about going against the grain and just putting guys where I believe they belong. Uh, this time of year, I don't even really look at mainstream or consensus mock boards that much. I'm, I'm trying to do my own work here, interact with a couple other people on Twitter whose minds I trust and, and think that they have that same process. Um, but it's hard for me to know outside of who the top five or 10 guys are who might be picked in the 16 to 18 range and who might be in the early second round. I think if I had to pick one guy who I don't think gets enough love and has some all-star upside, it would be Ishmael Kamagate from, from Paris. 
super athletic, big. He has a ton of defensive upside, but much more creativity on the blocks, off the bounce, a supremely good passer in a way that's underrated through his game. I love his feel and think that he's going to translate really well to the NBA. In a draft class like this, I think we're, we're comfortable having him in the later parts of our lottery, which is not something we typically do for big men. So uh, if you haven't watched him play, I definitely recommend doing so. He was a little bit of a later guy on our radar. We didn't start paying a ton of attention to until December and, and into January, but he's risen pretty quickly and consistently with his play. I think that's one guy where if he doesn't go in the top 20, it's going to make some people look pretty foolish. Sergio, Sergio, let's go see Sergio. His question for us, what players do you think will be the best options for the Indiana Pacers in the late first or early second round range? They have a few draft picks that they've acquired that are going to be in this range thanks to the, the trade with the Cleveland Cavaliers. I think they simply need talent. You know, they still have Miles Turner, but there's an opportunity to add big men. I don't think that you avoid getting bigs just because you kept Turner. Now they have Halliburton, Duarte, Malcolm Brogdon. I don't think you avoid guards just because you need them. Take the best player available. In terms of building blocks and, and what they're looking for moving forward, I actually think the Pacers have the most fluid situation in the NBA. Just go after talent. Whoever's the best guy available is going to be the best fit for the Pacers this year. Gustavo Papi at Gustavo G. Papi. Do you see a similar development trajectory happening with the Orlando Magic that's been taking place in Memphis? It is still early, but it looks like they're developing their players the right way, and maybe Jonathan Isaac could have a JJJ-type leap next year. Yeah, Jaron Jackson Jr., a little bit more offensively skilled than a guy like Isaac, so that makes it tough. But I, I like this question. You know, Memphis, they got two high draft picks in 2018 and 2019. They nailed both of them. They nailed coloring in around the margins with the right type of role players, and they knew what type of culture they wanted to build and fit with veterans that they added who were high IQ ball movers and, and really solid defenders, and then drafted and, and constructed enough shooting around their core to make it work. That was the blueprint moving forward. Orlando's in a little bit of a different spot. I, uh, I'm a big fan of Jamal Mosley. I, I trust his development plans. I like the staff there. I like their guys individually. I, obviously, I'm huge on Jalen Suggs, having him third on our 2021 big board. I really liked Cole Anthony last year, and now he's one of the better younger guards in the NBA. And I'm a big R.J. Hampton guy. I wrote an article back in December about how he's really getting squeezed from minutes in a way that is disappointing because I like what he's shown when he's, when he's gotten the opportunity to play with the ball in his hands more. Wagner's been a great find and, and one guy that pretty clearly I was, I was too low on. I like Wendell Carter, right? Contract is great. And that's a huge thing with, with Carter that makes him super versatile is he's not going to cost the Orlando magic too much. Could be a high level backup or a, a solid competent starter. I love Jonathan Isaac's defense. If he comes back to, to form and is able to get healthy after the torn ACL, he's going to be a problem on the wings. I like all of those individual pieces, but it's the fit that's tough. You know, there's not enough shooting. There's too many guards. We also have Markel Fultz in the mix there. So a lot of backcourt guys that are better with the ball in their hands than off of it. Memphis has such clarity of purpose with their roles with the way that they fit their players together. Everything has hit over the last three or four years for the Grizzlies. And right now, Orlando seems to be more in the talent gathering stage where they're just trying to see who the best guys are that they've accumulated. Then they see who sticks and fill in the margins around them. So I, I love the individual talent. I trust the development plan of making them better basketball players but I don't think that the pieces are already there around the margins to come together and mesh for a high leap within one or two years to get to the magic to where the Grizzlies are right now, which is the third best team in the Western conference and a legitimate playoff contender. Well, those are the last questions that we had here on our mailbag episode, but I did want to end on the Grizzlies because we have a team building piece on Memphis coming out sometime next week, talking about, 
how they have great synergy in every one of those aspects that we just talked about. Player development, hitting on their draft picks, adding the right veterans, meshing it all on court, having a coaching system that really fits. So that's going to be one of those pieces that we have coming out soon. It's February. We're still in season, but we try to spend a lot more of this time getting my mind right for March, for April, when the body of work from a lot of these prospects wraps up. So I tend to treat February as much more of a philosophy type of month. Look at the NBA and figure out what works and what wins. Look at prior drafts and learn lessons to try to project things a little bit better or more clearly. Then March, April, May, those become the months where evaluations and individual prospect deep dives come in. So we still have our weekend updates going out every Monday on some prospects who played well over the weekend. June is much closer than we all think, but I've always felt that for clarity of purpose, for making sure that we go into the eval period, knowing exactly what we should be looking for. I try not to get bogged down in playing the adjust, excuse me, the adjustment games on big boards and just tinkering with, with all that stuff and overreacting to singular performances. I wait till the body of work is done and then really dive in on individual players at that point in time. You know, we uh, we're finishing up our season here at the at Boys Latin, the school that I coach at within the next couple of weeks. Two weeks from now is the championship in our league. We've got two more regular season games. We're we're making the playoffs this year. So we've got to prepare for that and get our guys ready to roll and, and make sure that that's where our top priorities are. But be on the lookout for a Grizzlies piece, a couple other philosophy pieces coming out over the next week or two as we turn the corner into the most exciting month of the year for basketball fans, March. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time.